revolutionary talk for revolutionary times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm. Good morning. Welcome to Medicine on Call. Today I have a really special guest and a, and a very good friend on Ms. Twyla Brace. She's president and co-founder of the Citizens Council and is a certified public nurse, health nurse. She provides commentary for one-of-a-kind uh, Health Freedom Minute, and she provides testimony at state legislators, meets members of Congress, speaks around the country. She's been on NBC, uh, Fox News, CNN, among other shows, because she has a lot to say, and thank God she has the, the willingness to educate us on what's going on with the privacy side of our healthcare system. She's now written a book, Big Brother in the Examining Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records, which I think is really timely and a very important conversation that we're going to have today. Um, Twyla, thank you so much for joining me. I know it's early in the morning where you are. No, <laughs> not a problem. I'm glad to be here. Well, you know, I was looking at your, um, your website, and last time you were on the show, we talked about the DNA, the child's, the child's DNA, what it, was, what it was supposed to be used for, or what it could be used for. And there's been an update, has there? Well, there are probably several things. I'm not totally sure exactly what you're referring um, to, but there are uh, several things. One is that we're trying to get the um, federal administration, the uh, Trump administration, to protect the DNA of newborns from researchers. We had that protection uh, in 2014, uh, or with a law that was passed in 2014, but it goes away when a federal regulation on research is finalized, which is expected to be this summer. And we would like the Trump administration to use regulations um, to put that back into place. And so that's that protection is going away, and we want that to be put back in place. There's another interesting thing in that just um, yesterday or this morning, I can't remember which, um, there's a really lengthy article about California's uh, DNA, uh, ch child DNA, and they've got 9 million uh, blood spot cards from children just since the year 2000, but they've been storing it since, I think it's 1983. Mm -hmm. And so they've got this huge biobank of newborn DNA that is considered property of the state. And then in Michigan, a lawsuit was filed recently, I can't remember if it was February or March, uh, by a father who's an attorney whose job whose job in life is actually suing the, the government. So, uh, uh, he uh, discovered the biobank that's in Michigan and has now filed several lawsuits at the federal and the state level to stop this storage without consent, um, you know, for all of people in Michigan. This is actually, it's just insidious how this has grown. And when you start to look at the commercial side of it with, you know, 23andMe and these other DNA data gathering well, I, I think they're DNA gathering um, uh, vehicles. 
what's in your opinion where would this the worst case scenario of, of your dna not being under your control what's the worst thing that you think that can happen the worst case scenario is that it becomes part of a new eugenics that uh, in this era of cost containment where third-party payers are the ones who are controlling what happens in the exam room, they're, they're the ones who, say, who are saying we'll pay for it or we won't pay for it, or if you don't follow these treatment protocols, then we're going to pay you less, you know, all of those outsider controls, right? And so if you can, if they can figure out down to the DNA of the individual what how expensive the individual might become, mm -hmm. even though the DNA is not destiny. You, you, you might exactly. never live long enough to have what could happen to you happen, and then nobody knows for sure if just because you happen to have a biomarker whether you're actually going to you know, have this thing occur. Mm -hmm. uh, regardless, if the DNA can be used um, as a way to say this is how expensive you'll become, and now we've got a new genetic therapy called CRISPR mm -hmm. that um, we can snip out part of your DNA and insert new DNA and therefore you won't be as expensive or your child won't be as expensive or the child that you're about or you would have otherwise won't be as expensive. That's where we get into basically a new version, a new 21st uh, century version of eugenics. I think you've tied it you know, up together really nicely. It's been one of my in the back of my mind a real twinge or fear that they're going to start to use this against us just because you can do something doesn't mean you should right this whole CRISPR movement I mean they're really going to town it was a I think a 60 minute story this past Sunday and they always talk about curing cancer and this and, and you know something altruistic but what about the other side of it and they don't even know what they're manipulating. Once you've inserted this gene, it's going to be passed generationally. It's not like a one-off. You've just changed the human, the human being, essentially. And what happens when you insert something and something else has a manifestation that didn't before you took the gene out? Nobody knows exactly. Just because you can sequence something doesn't mean you really understand it, does it? Right. And this, that idea of right manipulating the DNA to cause, hopefully, that would be the hope, right? Mm -hmm. That you'd, uh, you know, decrease something or increase something or whatever it is. But what if two generations down the road you figure out that this has caused something you never imagined would be caused? Well, these are human beings now, fully created. <laughs> exactly. Then what are you going to do? It's like they some live. sort of sci-fi. They yeah. breathe. They're real. <laughs> you can't just, you know undo the damage that you've done and of course they'll want to marry people and have children and exactly right? so this is this is not a small thing it's not and you know i noticed that there's never any discussion about prevention it's always after the fact of let's cure the disease but how about preventing it i mean we basically know there are many things that is causing an increase in the in the cancer rate you know you've got the cell towers and the 5G coming online and the cell phones, which we already know that studies have shown can cause cancer. There's nothing being done to stop that, is there? Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost get into a philosophical or theological or whatever kind of question you might want to call that because at the end of the day, being alive is risky <laughs> and everybody's going to die. 
And so now it's a matter of which risk do you want to take in order to have the kind of life that you want to have. If you never got into a car, you'd never have car accidents. And so, I mean, there are there are things where we just assume and agree to certain risks. We wouldn't have to use a cell phone, for example, but that's kind of how it works. But you wouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you could you could stick with just your computer at home, and you could stick with just your phone, your landline phone, and you could you could live that way. It would cause you inconvenience in today's world, but you can make those choices. But really, I think when it comes to prevention in healthcare, it's really about having the money in your own hands. And as soon as you have the money in your own hands, you start to look at how your behavior changes, whether you will have all that money still in your hands, mm-hmm. or whether you will be giving it out in doctor's bills and dentist bills. And, uh, and there are things you can't prevent, like, you know, whatever your DNA might lead to, which, as I said, it's not destiny, right? But mm-hmm. there are just things. You can see them in your family. The whole family has something similar, right? Mm-hmm. There are things you can't prevent, and there are accidents you can't prevent. And if somebody, you know, hits you in a car, you, you can't prevent that. But there are other things where if you, if, if your money was at stake rather than the third-party payer's money, you might start to be more preventive in your mind and in your actions than you are today. I think you make an excellent point. You know, to me, the the argument of the direction of our healthcare system comes down to one thing, really. Do you want to control your money, your pocketbook, or do you want the government to control your pocketbook and third-party payers? And when you put that into, I mean, now we're seeing how this has rolled out. Before the Affordable Care Act came online, it was all conjecture. It's going to be awesome pie in the sky. But now we've gone down the road. We see the writing on the wall, don't we? The costs have gone up in that system. Access has gone down. The workforce has changed. Hospitals, I mean, access to hospitals and healthcare in general is has decreased. You're, you're paying more and getting less. So now that that's an issue, I mean, I was just on a show yesterday, and the, the host couldn't understand why they wouldn't want to use their insurance when I gave examples of price transparency and and you being able to control your own pocketbook, it really was a, they just couldn't wrap their mind around, it could be cheaper, I have control, it's a good thing. Are you finding that when you go out and and discuss the future of, of healthcare with people? I think there are probably two mindsets. The one, which is like the person that you were talking to, who probably has a pretty good job mm-hmm. and makes a fair amount of money and uh, just you know looks at you know why wouldn't they want to use this thing that they have put their money toward? Um, but it's a it's very short-sighted uh, and maybe uh, because people who have employer-sponsored coverage typically have lower deductibles than people who are in the individual market mm-hmm. or people who are who have Obamacare they tend to have very high deductibles. So for those folks, it makes perfectly good sense once they figure it out that they're never, almost none of them are ever going to meet their deductibles. So if you're going to have five procedures, if your deductible is $5,000 and you're going to have five procedures and the maximum that those five procedures under insurance is going to cost is $4,000. But if you could get those five procedures for $2,000 by paying cash, 
it makes good sense because you have saved two thousand dollars and you were never going to tap into your insurance anyway. Exactly. But you have to you have to be thinking in that mindset. You have to have a high enough deductible for that to make sense. And you have to be if I mean if you're a, an unhealthy person and you're having high medical bills all the time, then that that won't make any sense. They'll want to use up their deductible as soon as possible with the highest possible bills so they can tap into insurance. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. but for the majority of people who are healthy and who now have high deductibles, it makes sense once they understand that it's possible. A lot of people just don't know it's possible. They haven't even they, they just don't even think in cash terms. <laughs> <laughs> but they need to they need to start because that's really where the savings come. And not only the savings, but the, as you say, the control. And oftentimes, more time with their doctor for less money. Mm-hmm. I, that's exactly right. I live it. On that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're having, I think, a very important conversation with Ms. Twyla Brace, president and co-founder of Citizens Council for Healthcare Freedom and author of a new book, Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records. I want to go now into your book because one of the things that the High Tech Act and the Affordable Care Act and all the things that we've been pushed towards is this streamlining of healthcare information and how awesome um, you know, health, uh, electronic health records are. And they sold this to doctors, you know, they gave money back and tax returns, et cetera. Patients were, you know, told that, you know, you need to go to a doctor who's modern and they're thinking and having one of these things in their office. And your book actually peels back the layer of truth versus fiction. So first I want to ask you, what made you or what moved you to write this book? Well, I think more than 20 years of trying to get um, uh, people who should understand (laughs) what's at stake here to understand. Uh, We look at, uh, our organization looks at data as in this mindset. He who holds the data makes the rules. And so it's very clear in Hillary's um, uh, bill, in Hillary Care, one of the things that she set up was a national uh, electronic medical record system and uh, a tracking system. Uh, President Obama, when he got into office, less than a month later, high tech was passed to mandate electronic health records. It's considered the foundation of a national health care system. And so when you know, Republicans or conservatives or whomever talk about electronic health records. It's looked at as though it's um, modern technology. It's as useful as the phone in your hand. It's, uh, you know, it's the best thing next to sliced bread. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But they don't understand that it's a tool of control. It's a tool of surveillance. It's a tool of tracking. It's a tool of government reporting. So the doctors have now become data clerks for the government to conduct surveillance on themselves and their patients for the purpose of outsiders controlling what happens in the exam room. And so the electronic health record, there were people who had electronic doctors who had electronic health records 
before mm-hmm. uh, this law went into effect. But those were free market electronic health records or EHRs. Those were free market EHRs. These are government certified, government mandated EHRs to do what the government says the electronic health record has to do or to be paid less by the government for failing to use them. And so that's, I think, what the American public doesn't understand. That's what lots of Republicans don't even understand. And, um, and, but there are Democrats, Republicans, and independents who are all into privacy and personal control and, and yet supporting the electronic health record as though it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like this, this disconnect between what the government EHR really is versus what they think, you know, is good about computerized data right I mean you're right from a real you know real-time perspective it isn't better you know it's it really, I agree with you completely you're typing in this information but when a doctor sends you a patient they still don't send a consult note so you don't know why they sent them you know they still you still are not communicating with when in the past they would call you you would talk on the phone you would know exactly why the patient was being sent you know that that community that that contact is gone. I still don't know what the patient doesn't know what medication they're on. They still can't. You still can't look it up in the EHR. So all the things they told you that it would make your life easier as a doctor doesn't happen. I'm still getting home at nine at night doing notes, right? So it's not conducive to making the healthcare the day to day more efficient. And I've seen and heard of things in the hospital where they put in bad data. And they still have patient bad patient outcomes and and medical errors because of what's been inputted. So it doesn't make it safer either, does it? No, actually, there are new medical errors introduced by the electronic health record, and there is a presumption because it's sitting there in crisp black and white, mm-hmm. right, on the computer screen that it's true, and that is one of the things that they found. Uh, with uh, computerized physician order entry is that there is this assumption that whatever it is 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 true so there's less doubt there's less looking at like okay is that actually accurate Mm -hmm. it's in the computerized format it just seems more um, factual and and true and error free uh, than it might be and then there are just all sorts of other kind of errors that happen there people have died the FDA has admitted that people have died and people have been seriously injured as a result of the electronic health record just as a result of the electronic health record so I I I think you know the people who wanted it you have to look at who who pushed for this Mm -hmm. and it was um, all of the. It was the data industry. It was the government agencies. It was the health plans. Um, it was the researchers. So everybody who wants the data pushed for it because they knew once they got it computerized and online, it would be easily accessible and available to them. So from a business perspective, this is you know just a. 21st century version of a gold mine <laughs> and what the American public doesn't understand because I'm just imagine some of your listeners going both well, what about HIPAA yeah right yeah, right please tell us what about, about HIPAA? that well HIPAA HIPAA is the reason why all of this can happen because HIPAA is not a privacy protection law it is a it is a data disclosure 
law. So it allows all of this data to be disclosed without the consent of the patient. This HIPAA too was pushed by the data industry, by the healthcare industry, by the government, and by everybody who wants access to our data to use it for their own purposes. And that's that's another reason for the book is for I got I've got an entire section. HIPAA doesn't protect privacy, so just I mean just <laughs> just you know like put it out there and then explain how everybody agrees. It's all about it allows all this data sharing. It has really nothing to do with protecting anybody's privacy. And when they talk about privacy in HIPAA, they're not actually talking about protecting the sharing your data from being shared. They're talking about keeping it secure after it's been shared. What? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Making sure that other people who they don't want to have it, you know, like hackers and mm-hmm. that sort of thing, right, don't get access to it. But other, and unauthorized people don't get to look at it. But there's so many people who are authorized to mm-hmm. look at it uh, under HIPAA that most people would think, well, that that's a violation of HIPAA. No, well, no, it's, it's actually not. Well, actually, for the listeners... Who does have who has access to the healthcare data? I know you said the government. Who what other entities have that? And what, what sections of government have that? So uh it was a very long rule, but um there was a list put out in uh, two thousand ten by the federal government of um, all these different covered entities and business associates. So the uh, and then there's government, and they didn't even mention that. Mm. But so there's 1.5 million business associates who could have access if those who hold your data give them access, and they don't have to, they don't need your consent to give them to all of those business associates. And then the covered entities are the folks who actually have your data as part of. Um, healthcare as part of doing medical care as part of you know psychology and it it includes the hospitals the health plans the doctors offices the radiology facilities the laboratories the long term care facilities all of those are con- and data clearinghouses all of those are considered covered entities which means they're they're covered by HIPAA or they're under under HIPAA they can right mm-hmm. but by being under HIPAA they're out they have permission, all these covered entities, 700,000 of them, have permission to share your data if they wish for all of these purposes. And so they can share it with these 1.5 million business associates, and those are entities. I mean, that's, there's tons of people in those entities, right? But so 1.5 million business associates, they can share it with each other as covered entities. They can share it with each other, 700,000 um, plus covered entities, and then they can share it with government. And um, government agencies are not governed by HIPAA, um, but HIPAA says that uh, there are 12 national priority purposes for which data can be shared without the patient's consent, and one of those is public health. Uh, another one is health care oversight, so to oversee the entire health care system, right? And I remember uh, seeing in the Federal Register a proposed rule come out that the FAA, right, so the Federal Aviation Administration, right, Mm -hmm. planes, airplanes, (laughs) um, they declared a public health reason for having access to the medical records of passengers. So, um, 
So anyway, so this is very broad yeah. where the information can be shared. Now, your doctor, your health plan, your hospital is not required to share the data. There are only two required sharings, and that's one is with you, the patient, and the other with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in order to monitor compliance with the HIPAA rule. Those are the only two required sharings. Right. Everything else is permissive, and they do not need your consent to share. Wow. When you think about where where we are now versus the paper chart, the days of the paper chart, when you <laughs> locked your door, nobody had access to that. <laughs> I know, and in order to take out 4,000 patient medical records, right, you, you need a truck. Exactly. But now all you need is a flash drive or a computer link or a hack. <laughs> um, yeah, those were the days. I know, right? Now I'm really pining away for them at this point. You know, one thing that I've always wanted to clarify, if you have an office with an electronic medical record system, the the vendor gets hacked. Not your office, but you know, you're, you're keeping it on a cloud because that's what they have you do. Who's liable for that patient d data breach because it's screwing up HIPAA technically? Is the doctor or is the vendor responsible for that? Hmm. Well, uh, not being an attorney, yeah. I'm not going to say that I totally know the answer to that. Okay. But I think one important thing to clarify here before I even answer is for your listeners to understand the cloud. Another way to think of this is a server farm. So the Epic uh, EHR has a server farm, so a bunch of servers sitting in Wisconsin. And everybody who's got an Epic record, these hospitals like Mayo Clinic, their entire system is in Epic. Well, the data does not exist unless they got a special deal with Epic, but I don't think that they do. Mm -hmm. um, the data does not does not live within the four walls of Mayo. It lives in Wisconsin, and so. Um, and so that's a very interesting thing because it, it means that Epic has everybody's data. It's not mail. Mail has access to it right through the internet, mm -hmm. through, through the cloud, right? The cloud is just a big server farm located somewhere that you access through the internet. Right. That's what it means by the cloud. It's just online access to the data which is somewhere else on all these servers in a faraway place. And so a lot of people don't understand that, that, that it's not really the hospital that holds the data. It's an EHR company mm -hmm. that has the data. And if the hospital does something that the EHR company doesn't like, for instance, refuses to pay a higher rate to access that data, Epic or the, any other EHR company can just shut down access to the hospital. And that has happened. Oh my they goodness. just shut it down. And all the patient's medical records are gone and inaccessible to the hospital. That's blackmail. That's unbelievable. <laughs> and that is why some hospitals, and, and Mayo might do that. Actually, I recall, I think Mayo and Epic, I think this is my book, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, they have a special deal with Mayo's data warehouse. And so I think they're sharing it in this data warehouse. Uh, and so that might be a special deal for them because maybe they didn't want to give all of the information to Epic. I'm not, I'm not totally sure, but you, mm -hmm. but 
But I think now your listeners get the idea. Yeah. And some hospitals and some clinics will bring a server into their own clinic to store all the data in their own clinic. And so they will pay to set up the server, pay to have somebody service the server. They'll pay for all of that rather than giving their data over to a EHR company that now has control and ownership in a, in a quasi-ownership way, right? Yeah. In a controlling way. They don't totally have ownership, right? But they can control access and that has its own kind of quasi-ownership. If the person, if the clinic or the hospital uh, refuses to pay or refuses to, to, you know, does something that they don't like. Or they want to change vendors. That's or they want to change vendors, that's right. <laughs> and they're trying to charge us $10,000 to port our data, to give us our data so we can have it transferred to a different vendor. Right. That was unbelievable. Right. And if you don't pay it... You lost it. You lost it. Yeah. So it's like it's not your data. And that's ridiculous. And what about the... I thought everything that the doctor does, you know, that, that patient data belongs to the patient as well as the doctor. That's not true? Um, there are a few laws... Uh, sorry. There are a few states that say that the data is the patient's. Mm -hmm. There are many states that say that the data is the doctor's. And, um, and the issue of ownership uh, is kind of a touchy issue. If patients understood that their data is not considered their data, that it's actually owned by somebody else and therefore it can be shared or done whatever mm -hmm. with somebody else, um, you know, there might be more concern, but a lot of patients don't understand that. Um, really, the doctor and the hospital should be stewards, trusted stewards of the patient's data because that's the only way it fits within the Hippocratic Oath. Exactly. It's the only way that the patient is protected from outsiders having access to this very personal information, which they are trusting the hospital and the doctor to protect their confidentiality. Um, but that's not the case today, and patients don't understand that. And that's one of the things that the book is meant to highlight, and that's why it's called Big Brother in the Exam Room, not only for the control, but also for the whole thing about ownership. There's a section that talks about ownership versus stewardship, and how there are all sorts of people who think that stewardship should mean that you hold the data, but that you get to decide how it can be used and the patient doesn't get to because you might have better ideas mm. how their data could be used than they do. <laughs> Sounds like a, a theme, doesn't it? On that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. 
again for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare. Visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Ms. Twyla Brace about our healthcare system and about what's going on now. I mean, I think this has been just a very uh, surreal experience from a physician's standpoint, from having complete autonomy to being a member of a healthcare team to having an, everybody else coming in and, and, and taking pieces of the pie and you actually having to, I don't know, they, they kind of can own you if you're not careful. You don't control your own healthcare record. You don't control what you charge your patients if you sold your practice to a hospital. You don't control what's covered, you know, what you think is medically necessary. Something else is deciding what it is. And down the road, this potentially this grid that you're describing can become completely uh, just overtake anything in terms of individual care. It's population-based medicine, it's artificial intelligence, it's like a remote conveyor belt type of system. It's what you seem to be describing. Well, I think that that is true, and I think that the when medicine began, right, mm-hmm. uh, it was because it was somebody hurting, somebody in need, and somebody decided that something had to be done about that, right? And so unless there's a patient, there's absolutely no need for any kind of a healthcare system. There's no, unless there's a patient, there's no need for a doctor. Um, but now, today, as a result of um, the Medicare program mm-hmm. and uh, employer-sponsored coverage, and because individuals are no longer paying most of their medical bills and therefore are no longer responsible and therefore are no longer in control. Um, and because doctors didn't absolutely refuse to take Medicare patients. That was the start of doctors coming under the control of outsiders. You know, you, you perhaps know the history of Medicare is that it was specifically put, specifically put into the law that there would be no outside interference by the federal government mm-hmm. in treatment decisions. Really? <laughs> it's kind of laughable today. Yeah, that's totally. Two plus thousand pages of regulations later, mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> and uh, and laws and oh, all the pieces of Obamacare or the mm-hmm. Affordable Care Act, which um, seek to reduce um, um, costs in Medicare by controlling physicians through paying them only for value and and not for actual services provided. And so as soon as you start to take the government's money or the third-party payers' money, then instead of the patient's money, then uh, and as soon as you start signing those contracts with the government and with the insurers and with the health plans, mm-hmm. that's when you lose control, and that's when the doctors started to work for the government and the insurance companies and now the health plans, because health plans really aren't insurance companies. Sort of like a we promise to pay your medical bills club. Uh, but only when we decide. That. Exactly. But, <laughs> Put that second piece in there when we want to. <laughs> and only what we decide to pay. Exactly. And um, 
And so, and so now the doctors are not working for the patients except in the case of, for instance, doctors who we have on the web of health freedom, mm-hmm. right? And doctors who are in uh, direct primary care practices in or outside the WED. Um, those doctors have stepped away from the government contracts and the insurance contracts. They've taken back their autonomy. Uh, patients pay them cash, check, or charge. And, um, and that's the way back to freedom. Uh, and patients don't understand what kind of trouble that they're in today because other people are paying their bills. Um, and, and that's just got to change or otherwise we don't have a healthcare system that works for the patients. We have a healthcare system where the patients and the doctors work for outsiders who are just profiting off both of them. Exactly. And not only profiting, but gathering data and using it. You know, I've actually heard of people, or I read an article at one point that said, you know, if you ever, you know, on Facebook and you notice that a medication that you're taking, you know, or for the class of medical problem that you have shows up, that's not by accident. I mean, do they sell these this data to advertising? Is that also going on? Um, I'm not exactly, well, so I know that, they, that for instance, the hospital, so let's just say company X wants to sell diapers, mm. for instance, right? And so they want to have access to everybody who has had a baby. Well, what they'll do is they'll have a contract with the hospital um, for the hospital to advertise their product. Um, and then they'll pay the hospital, but they won't get the, the actual addresses and names of people, mm-hmm. but they will get their information in those people's mailboxes through a contract with the hospital. So that's one way that they do it. Now, um, Facebook and and others, um, through LexisNexis and other kinds of data gathering entities, can have a lot of information about, information about patients. The Medical Information Bureau, which I, which I actually forgot to talk about in the book, interestingly enough, um, and that book comes, will be on Amazon in June. It's, okay. it's, it's almost ready, but it's, it's not out yet. Um, but the Medical Information Bureau has information on everybody on what they use their insurance for. I'm not exactly sure that the Medical Information Bureau, I don't necessarily know that they're um, limited from um, sharing that kind of information. Uh, and then there's the credit card companies, right? Mm-hmm. So if you go to um, and get a prescription and there's a way to identify it, you know, that's entirely possible that way. But one thing I would say about Facebook that I think is particularly interesting that has come out after the Cambria Analytics um, debacle mm-hmm. that became known by everybody, I don't know if everybody knows as much about the fact that Facebook was um, working with Stanford Medical School as well as the um, Academy of, I'm not going to be able to think about it, but it is um, a heart, it's an academy that has to do with um, cardiology and uh, and conditions, Mm -hmm. and that uh, academy has 10 different databases. Facebook had approached them in order to get medical information from them so that they could match it up with user data, Facebook user data. Wow. And Facebook put that on pause after the Cambria scandal broke. And um, But they only put it on pause. <laughs> they didn't shelve it. Mm-hmm. And because of HIPAA, those entities, Stanford and, and that database system, 
they can share that information with Facebook as a healthcare operation to try and figure out more information about their own patients. So, um, so that no contract, no data use agreement had been signed yet according to news reports. But I don't know if Facebook will continue to pursue that. So imagine how this could work down the road. You know, you have, you come in with a heart condition or high blood pressure. They, they scroll through your Facebook and find that you're doing, or you have habits that are exacerbating your medical condition. What, I mean, I just think of all the horrible things that can happen. They can pull your insurance because you're not compliant. I don't know. I mean, it just, it's not, there's no safe harbor anywhere, is there? Uh, yeah, it's very difficult. It's, um, I have a quote in the book from Judy Faulkner, who is the CEO and founder of Epic. And Epic has healthcare information in their system on about 68% of the American population. So most Americans have been to some clinic or hospital that has an Epic system. And so maybe not all their medical records are with Epic, but some portion of them are, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Judy Faulkner, uh, in September of 2016, or maybe 2017, I think, um, told the users group, which are people who use uh, the Epic record and come to this conference because they use the Epic record, and said something on the order of, and I am paraphrasing, but you can find the quote in the book, <laughs> something on the order of, we need to know what you eat, we know, need to know uh, how long you sleep, we need to know your social habits, because all of that impacts health. And there is really an attempt to, to use social media, so Facebook, Snapchat, mm -hmm. um, Twitter, to gather all of this information. And then, of course, there's the portal, the, the clinic portals, the hospital portals, mm -hmm. right? These are all, I believe, uh, ways to not, well, in order to get fully paid, doctors have to get a certain amount of their patients to use this portal, which is why people are encouraged to use the portal when they're at the doctor's office, to sign up for the portal, right? Mm -hmm. But I also think that this is a way for them to encourage people to report on themselves oh, wow. <laughs> to the government EHR, right? Uh -huh. To add more information about their habits and their history and their family and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Because they are allowed to, it's called um, patient-generated data. Mm -hmm. They are allowed to add this data, which then becomes part of the electronic health record, which then can become part of the national medical record system that's being built. And I talk about that in the book as well. So, you know, beware the portal. <laughs> and you might like the portal because you can go in there and get your lab test, but it's also kind of a lazy thing, right? So your lab tests come on there, but shouldn't you be having a conversation with your doctor before you see the lab test? I have heard about people who have seen their diagnoses on the portal, terrible diagnoses, mm. before their doctor has told them. You know, that shouldn't happen. No. There no. should be a discussion carefully said with the patient and the doctor in the room right there yeah. to have a conversation to answer the questions and tackle the fear. So, you know, beware the portal for many reasons. I, I see. On that note, let's take a small break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Well, 
Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're listening, I'm sorry, we're speaking with Ms. Twyla Brace, the author of Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records. You know, Twyla, one of the things I've noticed is you have to look for these the euphemisms and how they word things. I never really thought about health information technology the way that I'm thinking about it now. It's just electronic medical records, you know, you can easily, you know, access your records when you're out of the office, but it's really not. It's it's information. It's information that's being used. And as we as you eloquently described, and I'm sure your book goes into more detail, we're voluntarily giving information that I don't think we would otherwise give. It's just they've managed to make this very, you know, earthy crunchy. It's a good thing and it's it's safe and you should feel good about doing it. It's just <laughs> you wonder if the Facebook era and all of the, the social media has softened up patients so that they voluntarily give all sorts of information they would never do if they were talking to somebody face-to-face. I think that's true. You know, there was a tweet. I don't remember who put it out, but it was, uh, I think it was a news source um, talking about uh, there was um, an email uh, conversation between Zuckerberg and someone else mm. back in his Harvard days. And it there was a comment about from Zuckerberg, like, yeah, if you, you know, if you want to know anything about anyone, just let me know. And the person said, you have all that? And Zuckerberg says something like, um, yeah, I don't know why people tell, I don't know why people share it, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think, um, I think people have been softened. They don't, they don't see all the seeing eyes mm-hmm. behind Facebook there. They don't see all the data crunchers. They, they don't see all that. They don't understand how it's being used, and they don't look forward and see how it could be used. Yeah. And um, you know, there's a lot of people who are perfectly fine with their information being shared, and they say they've got nothing to hide in their medical records. But I would ask them to take a look in their medical records because um, things are said about them that they don't realize mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, if every doctor has access to all of your medical records, you will never be able to have a fresh second opinion, an unbiased second opinion, so that when you disagree with what the doctor said, or you find yourself in a situation in a network with only one choice for a specialist, right, and you decide to pay money to go outside because this doctor and you do not get along Mm -hmm. or you don't trust this doctor or the doctor is following these standardized protocols and they won't go beyond them. Now you want to go to somebody else who will give you a fresh opinion about what's really wrong with you and what will really work. But they get all the comments from the doctor that you don't like, (laughs) right? Yeah. And so that's, that's not a good thing. You have to be able to control your own information so that you can protect your choices and perhaps protect your life. Um, because, and I know that that has happened with people where they have gotten a fresh opinion because they made sure that the other doctor, the second doctor, didn't get any information from the first doctor. The first doctor gave that person four months to live and, and did nothing, and the next doctor did something and the person got four years. I mean, that's the kind of freedom and choices and mm-hmm. control mm-hmm. that give you your life. I mean, that's important, and people don't think about that, and they need to. I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I, I get asked the question about, is there a way we can opt or change the healthcare system? We have this direction that 
everybody seems to be, you know, we're being pushed down towards. You and I both and the people that we know think outside the box. That's why you created Join the Wedge. And people should go to jointhewedge.com where there's a listing of doctors across the country who believe in patient privacy, who have no access to health information. Well, no, their health, if they do have electronic medical record, is not linked to this big brain system that we just described. And so whatever you say in that doctor's office is, is held sacrosanct. That's key. So, Twyla, how do you think we can work around this system or, or put pressure on this system to actually change? Is there something that we can do? Um, when the book comes out, there's actually a section that has a list, a numbered list for Congress, a numbered list for state legislators, a numbered list for patients, and a numbered list for practitioners. And um, in and, and no particular order, mm-hmm. but a list of things to do. And uh, patients can start by carefully calibrating what they share and by not just filling out those uh, forms that the doctor's office gives them or those uh, iPads with, you know, fill in the blank mm-hmm. fields. Um, I've actually done that, and um, even though it caused trouble for them, mm-hmm. eventually I got through without filling out all those questions. Um, and so there are things that individuals can do, uh, but it is really important to start, which is what we're doing with the Wedge of Health Freedom, is we're, we're building a system outside of the current system. And the interesting thing is that Obamacare and Medicare and Medicaid and all these programs can still stay in law, never repealed, mm-hmm. with all their rationing, with all their controls, with all their high prices, but they don't have to be impacting anyone. In other words, everyone can come out from under all of those restrictions, requirements, and controls. They, it's, as doctors start to leave and patients start to find them, to support them and build those independent, affordable practices that are affordable to patients, more and more doctors will come out from under. And once a sufficient number of doctors come out from under, it will be hard for managed care for these health plans and our concerns. It'll be hard for them to survive because they won't have enough doctors in their network. Then we will go back to traditional indemnity insurance. And actually, we're already starting to go back to traditional indemnity insurance. For instance, what Idaho did and what Iowa has done, uh, Iowa created a law They created a product that in law they specifically say is not insurance. This is not health insurance. Yes, it may look like it. Yes, it may act like it. But by law, we have declared it not health insurance. And therefore, it is not under all the restrictions and requirements of the Affordable Care Act. This is what states can do. And interestingly enough, just this morning in the news, uh, it was announced that Lamar Alexander, the head of health care in the U.S. Senate, uh, said in a letter that we can't repeal Obamacare, and it is now up to the Trump administration and the states. And indeed, that is true. Mm-hmm. And so we can start moving back to real insurance that's only there for catastrophes and is therefore affordable, and we can move back to cash-based care for routine and minor care, and a first payment to doctors, for, you know, direct payment from the patient to the doctor, and eventually even the patient to the hospital. That's what traditional insurance does, is it pays you a check, mm-hmm. a big check, 
and then you pay your doctor in your hospital. And therefore, the third party, the insurance company, never interferes. Doesn't tell you what drugs you can have, doesn't say what drugs you can't have, doesn't tell you what surgery you can have and surgery you can't have. No interference because you, the patient, are paying the hospital, you, the patient, are paying the doctor, and you, the patient, are paying the insurance company premiums direct, and they are paying you a check direct. So it takes out all those third-party payer costs that come from interference. Mm -hmm. So we can go back, and the wedge at jointhewedge.com is meant to get it back there. We're you know, adding doctors around the country every week. We add a doctor here, a doctor there, <laughs> right? Yeah. And we want to get all the doctors that currently are third-party payer-free, they're only cash, check, or charge, and then we want to start peeling off all the other doctors who don't even, can't even imagine being free today, mm -hmm. but it's possible, and they can go free. I love that. It's so, it's so positive. It's so empowering to know that you control your own destiny as both a doctor and definitely for the patient. In America. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, for, for me, I mean, just getting up in the morning and knowing that you have what you and your patient decide no one has the right to step in the middle of. And it makes it a joy to practice medicine as opposed to, I can't give you this. I can't send you for an alternative treatments. It's what you can't do in that system versus what you can. Well, and your listeners may not know, but a survey in September 2016 of more than 17,000 physicians found that nearly 50% of them are planning to leave patient care. So some of them are planning to go into concierge, so they'll go from instead of 3,000 patients, they'll go on to like 300 or mm -hmm. 600 or something, right? They're just a drastic cut in the number of patients that they will see. But others are planning to retire early or go into non-clinical medicine. That's a tragedy. 50, well, it's 48%. But almost half the physicians in the United States are planning to make an exit. This should cause every patient to like stand up and notice, right? And that's why they should be supporting any doctor that has come out on their own, cash check or charge, uh, sign no contracts except with the patient. That's what they should be supporting because that's where our doctors need to go. They need to go back to first-party payment, either direct primary care, but that's a lower number of patients that can be in there, or just third-party payer-free, just direct payment, just fee-for-service, you know, pay for every service that the doctor gives you um, because uh, that's where we have to go. And patients who want a doctor in their life and in their future need to support those doctors that have gone free. On that note, Twyla, we have to stop. Thank you so much for coming on. And people need to go to Amazon and get your book in June. In June. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Medicine on Call. Revolutionary talk for revolutionary times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm.